Hi, everybody. You're back on the Faculty Factory podcast. Remember, what is the Faculty Factory? We are a community sharing tools to build leaders. And one of our great builders here at Hopkins is Danielle Piccinini Black. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me today. Danielle is the Design Innovation Lead at the Johns Hopkins Center for Communication Programs through the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Academic Lead for Design Thinking at the Johns Hopkins Carey Business School, Executive Education. She leads the development and implementation of design thinking research, workshops, and co-creation internationally to address emerging public health needs and uses that experience to enhance her design thinking courses. Danielle's current human-centered design portfolio consists of projects in nutrition, malaria, harm reduction and opioid use, water and sanitation, and safe surgery in family planning and obstetrics. Whoa, what a portfolio, but wait till you learn about design thinking. Maybe you've heard a little bit about it. I didn't really learn enough about it until Danielle was teaching in our leadership courses. So again, Danielle, Welcome to the podcast and tell us what is design thinking and what is human-centered design and teach us how to distinguish these and how we can apply them in our daily lives. Great. Thanks, Kim. Yes. So what is this design thinking thing? What is human-centered design? These are terms we're hearing more now than ever. When I entered the field about seven years ago, these terms were very new in the public health and healthcare spaces. So we've, you know, really the popularity has just increased substantially over that time. And many people think because they're just hearing these terms for the first time that these are new concepts. So design thinking and human-centered design are new, but they're really not. They really have roots back into the 50s and 60s, starting primarily in the engineering space and then making their way into many different fields um, that, that we all work in today. So just a little bit of a distinction between human-centered design and design thinking, because this is a common question that folks ask me when they're learning these terms for the first time. It's like, oh, I've heard about human-centered design or I've heard about design thinking are they the same? Are they different? How does it all fit together? So essentially, the way that I like to describe it is human-centered design is really this framework for many different approaches and techniques that are human-centered and empathy-focused. So there are many different approaches that fit underneath this framework of human-centered design. So you may have heard of things like user experience design, patient-centered design, systems thinking, service design, and of course, design thinking. So all of these leverage a human-centered design framework. Design thinking is the process that I champion in my work through the School of Public Health at the Center for Communication Programs and what I teach at the Cary Business School. And design thinking is really this creative, iterative, problem-solving process that's rooted in empathy. So it emphasizes the importance of keeping the people that you're designing for central to the process, because we believe that those closest to the problem are going to be best positioned to come up with the solutions. So why not lean into that and engage them in that problem-solving process from start to finish? So by that engagement with end users, we believe that this will lead us to innovative solutions that directly meet the needs of our target audience and are desirable to them. Well, that sounds so much like my background is in sociology. And there's a 
common um, phrase, nothing about us without us, you know, for when this kind of gets away from this idea of, you know, some academic from their ivory tower is going to come into our community and fix our problems. And they're going to tell us what's wrong with us and, and design these interventions or programs and slap a bandaid on things and then kind of peace out. And it's, but they're doing it as these academics. And so it, it came about when I think a lot of it was in anthropology, sociology, where you just want to survey us, we're your lab rats, and then you you leave, and then then where do you leave us? So that's what I'm thinking when you're saying empathy, you know, focused on empathy and creative and iterative and end, end users, it makes me think of that yet naturally. Uh, certainly, we bring as academics something to the table, and yet there are so many nuanced components that if you are designing something for patients and you don't have patients there, you know, shame on you. <laughs> how do you, how can you, the arrogance of that is, is kind of mind boggling, right? So it makes a lot of sense. And yet I bet you're going to get to operationally. It's challenging. Yeah, definitely. Exactly what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. And when people learn about this for the first time, the response is, yeah, of course. Like, why why not? Why aren't we talking to the end user? Why aren't we talking to the related stakeholders to the challenge? Like, why isn't that? And I would say in academia, there's a lot of pushback for people who have studied and done a lot of research in specific spaces. And they feel that they're, you know, they're very accustomed to doing things a particular way, doing the traditional formative research through quantitative, qualitative research methods. And those are, you know, those have a lot of value. But what I'm here to say is that those should never stand alone, right? They should be, you know, used in conjunction with some of these other types of approaches that are more human-centered in nature, that are really actively engaging the end users in problem solving rather than just learning from them, then taking that information back to, as you call it, the ivory tower, coming up with solutions and rolling them out to implementation. It's really engaging them in the entire process. And this is really beneficial, we find, in design thinking because we are, because we're learning directly from the end users about what they need, the solutions end up working better. We get that not only are they vetted as we're you know, developing them, but we're also gaining the buy-in of the folks that ultimately need to embrace these solutions. And buy-in is essential. So getting that buy-in by engaging them is a huge win when using a design thinking process. And the other thing I'll say is like, I'm not here to say we should only engage end users. I think there's definitely a place for academics. There's definitely a place for people who have a lot of experience in other you know, areas of the field. And this is why in design thinking, we aim to leverage multidisciplinary teams. So we look at who are all of the people who have knowledge, investment, interest, et cetera, in this space. And we bring them to the table together alongside end users to come up with solutions because everyone knows something a little bit different. Everyone's experience is a little bit different. And we find by bringing together those different voices, the solutions that come up are extremely innovative and they're different. And also by getting all of those voices together at the table, we're really building empathy. People are learning about you know, each other and that, that empathy building is a huge driver for the the development of these solutions that have a fantastic impact in these communities. Beautiful, 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 beautiful. And I think to that point, I envision this because I'm all, I'm a community person and I'm all about building community. And 
I, I envision this room where all these people are together. And I, I imagine that we have to start from creating a really safe place and making sure that everyone knows that they are not only they, they don't fit there, but they belong there, that there is a dedicated space, that there is, um, thoughtful, purposeful interaction that, no, we don't just want to hear from all the doctors and the researchers around this table. We also want to hear from the the community, the people in the community and help us think about unanticipated events or consequences or things we've not thought of from in terms of accessibility, affordability, availability, all those things that sometimes we are stuck in beta coefficients and and return on investment <laughs> and, you know, and data and the end user, the, 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 the patient or the community member, the leaders in the community may be like, this is great, but how are you going to sustain this? Or this sounds good, but operational, let me tell you a couple of ways why this might not work that we don't appreciate. So I imagine you have to start with, a st- and it take, this is where it takes time. You have to build those relationships yes. and create a safe space. Yeah. Totally. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that inevitably when you gather multidisciplinary teams, there are hierarchies that we need to address. And as easy it is to say that, oh, yeah, we'll all come to the table as equals and it will be fine. The reality of it is that's not the case. We all come in and we have this, you know, perception of who we are in relation to the person next to me and they're in relation to the person across the table from me. And it's really on the facilitator of this process to create kind of we are all equals in this together space. And there are lots of ways to do that. But in my experience, some of the best ways to do it are to remove titles. So in the when I run these types of workshops, we remove titles. We don't use that at all. We are all, we all go by first names. The other wonderful equalizer is clothing. We all come in wearing comfortable clothing and making that very, very, you know, um, kind of just like an outward symbol of us being all the same. And then the other thing that's really important too, is oftentimes the people who feel inferior are the ones who are the end users, who are ultimately going to be the people who will be using the solutions that we're developing. Um, And the way that I like to address that is really turning the whole thing on its head by, from day one, saying the experts in the room here today are actually those of you who are sitting here with lived experience. We want to hear from those with both living and lived experience, actually. And And you are the experts. And so by kind of switching that frame, it helps people to really gain that confidence to engage as equals at the table. So smart. So smart. Removing titles, dressing alike, starting with first names, flipping, flipping the concept of, hey, we're here to learn from you versus some people thinking, here we go. We're going to listen to these blowhards tell us about this and that literature. And they think they're fancy pants at the university, but no, actually sitting there authentically saying, Teach us, you teach us, you tell us. That is, that's so smart. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it works really well. And it's hard to do though. I think that, you know, it's hard, it is hard for many people to do. And one concept we talk about a lot in design thinking is this concept of a beginner's mind. So entering a challenge with a beginner's mind, leaving all of uh, what I like to say, leaving all your baggage at the door and really opening yourself up to learning things for the first time or learning things differently. Now, Danielle, this, so I'm, I'm going to try to put on like my 
my faculty members had if I'm going to if I want to develop a program, say, um, gosh, I'm going back old school now. Oh, I worked at Penn State. We did like teenage pregnancy prevention. And so we were steeped in the literature and we knew best practices. And, um, you know, we were working with uh, philanthropy and that we had kind of all the ducks in a row. And then, of course, we wanted to bring some teenagers who at the moment were pregnant or who had recently been pregnant I'm trying to remember how that, you know, played out. And th- th- we had a lot of challenges. How do we as academics balance that authentic, genuine, passionate desire to make change, to make a difference, to to do good with our, the knowledge of something like maybe, the, the, again, these best practices? How do you navigate that when you have some, like t- for us, I remembering, I'm remembering some teenage girls saying, well, you know, we need A, B, C, D, and E. And we were like, well, you know, that's not going to be part of this program. We can't preside A, B, C, D, and E. So is it just kind of basic relationship building and emotional intelligence? Because then I'm remembering some, you know, kind of conversations that were a little bit touchy where then they kind of got a little bit defensive. I thought you were here to help us and this is what we need. And so, mm-hmm. you know, can you work me through, work us through some of these, you know, practically it sounds wonderful. It sounds lovely. But then you get that <laughs> nuts and bolts. And you go, yeah, but, and, you know, how, how do you, how do we know, where, where do you draw the line or what can you tell us to help us kind of get through those um, challenging conversations and challenging dynamics with such heterogeneous groups of people? Yeah, I think it's really tough. And I think the best way to do it is to set those expectations from the very beginning, Mm. really what is within our scope and what is outside of our scope and how do we all play a role in coming up with solutions that fit within that scope and just being very clear from the very beginning. Um. Another thing that's really important is is identifying how you're going to be engaging these different players throughout the problem solving process. What are your expectations of them? What do you hope to get from them? What can they expect to get from you? And just making sure that all of that is very clear from the very beginning. One thing we really want to avoid is being extractive in any way. We don't want to go into these communities or talk to these patients, you know, work with them, get all of this wonderful information, come up with these great ideas, and then never engage them again. I think that's one common pitfall in in a lot of research is we engage folks, we ask a lot from them to help us come up with these really great solutions, and then that's it. Right. And then I think, you know, that's a loss in many ways. First of all, it's just, you know, from a human standpoint, nobody wants to feel like they've had something taken from them. Exactly. They don't want to feel used. But also, as I mentioned earlier, one of the best parts about engaging end users and related stakeholders in this work is the buy-in that you get from these people. These people are ultimately champions for whatever comes out of this work. So using them in that way, I think, is beneficial not only to you, but also to them. They want that. They're like, we were part of this. We want to be champions. We want to kind of spread spread the good news and spread the, you know, the information about these wonderful interventions that were developed through this process. So I I think all of those pieces really help to mitigate some of those issues that you're mentioning. The other thing I'll say that human-centered design and design thinking do really well is they 
really champion some very user-friendly tools for problem solving. So these are tools that anybody can really engage with. And I use tools um, and activities pretty much interchangeably at, at this point. But essentially, all of the tools and activities used in design thinking can be done by anyone. You don't need to have a background in design thinking. You don't need to be an academic. You don't even need to know how to read or write to be able to engage in these activities. So they're a nice equalizer so that anyone can engage with them and feel like they're contributing in a meaningful way. And these principles sound like they are enduring or applicable to many situations. I mean, you just taught me something. I'm like, of course, set up expectations up front. That principle would apply if you're, uh, building a research lab or hiring staff to work in your in your clinic or colleagues on a, a grant or a paper, anything where there may be, you know, you just say, this is what we're going to work on. This is how the authorship lineup is going to look. This is how we run experiments. This is how we log our, our daily work. This is how we do things. This is our culture around here. You set those expectations up front and no surprises. So I it just kind of basic the principle of this, again, empathetic kind of mindset and framework has wide reaching application. I think it just, it's really um, just a way of thinking. It just sounds like it's really all encompassing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there's this common misconception when people hear terms like design thinking that they think it can only be used for product development because originally that was one of the primary uses of design thinking. And things like the first Apple mouse, for example, are um, examples of products developed use, developed through design thinking. But in actuality, as you've just said, it's an extremely flexible process that can be used for a wide variety of things, you know, just standard problem solving, improving a system or a process, coming up with a new intervention or program. These are all wonderful ways um, that you can apply design thinking. If it goes cattywampus, like where will it go off the rails? I know you've done a lot of projects internationally. Where have you seen opportunities to improve or where do we get lazy when, when we get off the rails with this kind of um, approach? So I think the biggest challenge is that design thinking by nature is iterative. So we are continuing to respond to insights that come out of the process and loop back to previous stages to get more information from end users, for example, or when we move into testing a solution, we take the results from that testing and figure out where we misunderstood or where we need more information, we loop back. So it's, it's intended to be a very iterative process. What I find more often than not, given funding time constraints, is that we don't lean into that iterative nature enough. We get to that solution piece, we come up with the solutions, and then that's it. But rather, if we're being true to the iterative nature of design thinking, we want to be spending more of that time continuously testing the solutions and iterating on those solutions until we find that they are, you know, that they're quote unquote, perfect. And then even so, after implementation for a certain amount of time, taking an opportunity to then test again and iterate further. So that would be, I would say, one of the common missteps and my recommendation in an ideal world, <laughs> if, if we had all the time and funding for all of the design thinking processes that we'd like to tackle. Yeah, you're making me think of um, when we try to avoid groupthink that we kind of in this, in our haste to 
get the project done and get a publication and make a presentation. We'll kind of say, all right, we good. Or end the meeting. Like we've all talked about things. We're good to go. Okay. See you next time. Versus fighting that instinct to hurry, hurry, hurry and say, okay, what haven't we thought about today? Or Danielle, we asked you before the meeting today to be the, the naysayer, you know, where have we maybe stopped talking? What, what have we failed to think about? Or what didn't we mention? Or what did you hear between the lines? Uh, what unanticipated things have we forgotten about? Um, kind of encouraging that pushback so that we don't rush to close the loop and don't unturn rocks. And I think that does, you know, gets to what you're saying. It takes time. It's thoughtful. It is iterative. And people like me, I'm thinking back to personality preferences who are high J's on the Myers-Briggs. And we like to close the loop, finish it, check the box. <laughs> we like to get things done. That tends to be our, you know, bugaboo is that slow down. Um, don't be so quick to finish. Have we peeked down all the avenues and explored um, options? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I'm also one of those people that likes to finish things and tie it up with a pretty bow. So my, you know, work in design thinking has definitely helped me realize that not everything needs to be tied up with a pretty bow. And, and oftentimes it shouldn't be. And there are a lot of benefits to leaving things more open-ended and iterative and really responding to the insights that emerge throughout a problem-solving process, specifically from the, the end users and related stakeholders that we're engaging. And it seems to me also that then you're setting a precedent in terms of building relationships, especially those of us who have who work really closely in communities and populations that when you engage fully and authentically in this process, those champions, those sponsors, those cheerleaders for our work, who they know then that they are valued, that they in, in fact are the experts. And not only will that project tend to have longer legs and a longer lifespan, but then I can imagine that relationship could help facilitate other projects in other industries or fields because people in the community know people like, oh, you're you're mm -hmm. with, you know, Johns Hopkins. Oh, we worked with them and on that project. Well, this is a totally different school. Yeah, but I know, I know that that process, I know that culture. I get that process. I've been there before. And yeah, it's worthwhile. So I think bringing everybody together at the table along on the whole journey. And then again, they get to be acknowledged. They are, they are promoted in all in the presentations and acknowledged in publications and on social media mm -hmm. that kind of ties the whole loop up like yeah we are one big family we're one big village here and that i would think that um success would just multiply and helps everybody yeah and you know what you're saying brings me back to one of my early design thinking projects that i did and this is some of the work that i did in the malaria space in Ghana when we were designing new nets for new mosquito nets for market in Ghana. And up until this point, for years and years and years, mosquito nets have been distributed for free in Ghana by the government or by, you know, external organizations. So people have received nets for free and these nets are of a standard size. And I can't say that people love them and they don't necessarily meet all of their needs, but they do serve an important purpose for malaria prevention. But for this specific scope of work, we were able to look at new net designs that were, would be interesting for people and would actually better meet their needs. And what was so interesting about this work is we engaged and 
end users. We ask them for their ideas with regard to net design. And at the end of one of my sessions with end users, someone raised their hand and stood up and said, I just want to thank you for coming here today. She's like, I have been given nets my whole life and no one has ever stopped to ask me, how do I feel about this? Does it meet your needs? Is it something, is there something we could do differently? And you've done that today. You've sat here and you've asked me because it, you know, and it shows me that I matter and that I'm important and my opinion is important and my opinion and my ideas can actually have an impact on reducing malaria, not only for me and my family, but for my greater community. And that to me was just like the biggest aha moment. I was like, yes, this is it. This is why I do what I do. And every time I remember that, I just get chills because it's just, it makes sense, right? We who work in the healthcare space and the public health spaces, we want to do good. That is our intention. And sometimes we get so caught up in our normal way of doing things that we don't try to go out of our comfort zones and, and engage the people who are closest to the problem. And when we have these opportunities to do so and have these aha moments, it really reminds us that it's so important to enter our work with an empathetic lens. Oh my goodness. I think that's a beautiful ending to this message that is so well said danielle peachinini black this is a wonderful reminder of of how we can improve our own lives i think i'm thinking just talk to somebody who's having a lot of stress and and burnout and this is just such a an affirming an affirming mindset and a framework of again rem- remembering why we're doing this and just that moment of connecting with another human being and getting out of our heads of being, um, yeah, relationship centered and empathetic makes so much sense. Great. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Well, everybody, great, great work, right? Danielle Piccinini Black here at Hopkins on design thinking. Uh, I hope you learned as much as I did. Uh, It feels really good to me right now. Thanks, Kim. Hello, everyone. It's your podcast producer. Just wanted to let you know that as of August 1st, 2023, this podcast that you're listening to has had over 73,000 total downloads and YouTube views from listeners in 84 different countries in the Faculty Factory website, facultyfactory.org. It has drawn over 37,000 web visits from users in 122 different countries. It's truly an international platform, and we would love to invite you to be a guest on this show. Our host, Dr. Skorupski, makes the experience super fun, very laid back. If you want something taken out of the actual recording, I'm totally happy to do that as the podcast producer. I'll make the edit. No pressure. You're going to have fun with it. We just want to hear from different faculty around the world about their experiences. So reach out to us, facultyfactory.org slash contact us. It's the contact us page on Faculty Factory. And let us know if you'd like to be on the show. We will get you in touch with Dr. Skorupski, or you can email her directly at kskorupski at jhmi.edu. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement 
in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.